so thank you, Michelle and Eric, for joining the uh, fourth in this entirely impromptu series of podcast talks under the heading of Last Meter. My intention behind this, as I said before, is entirely selfish. I just want to talk with cool people that I can um, learn things from um, and that have a connection loosely or, or closely to the Last Meter work of base two. Um, the best way to start, I think, because we've got somewhat disparate kind of inputs, but I, but I think there's a kind of healthy core, is if we just introduce ourselves, don't feel the need to be short, give us a full picture of what you're up to, and then I'll start to pull the, the, the threads together. Um, the overall you know, goal with this podcast talk is to kind of touch on the balance between uh, public housing, infrastructure, retrofit, and uh, service integration. We've talked about all of those things separately, uh, individually. Now let's see if we can pull the, the strands together. So, so Michelle, maybe you, you, you should kick off. Let, let, let us know what you're doing and what you've done and what you're interested in. Sure. Um, thanks, John. So my background is in single-family, high-end residential property development and design build. And I had my own firm in Fairfield County, Connecticut for 20 years, uh, up until we had kind of the bad times where we were in the 2008 kind of hit. Um, but even prior to that, I'd started being annoyed that I was solving the same problems over and over on every single project. And then when the market crash happened, started getting more interested in how to build efficiently. And that came to me as material efficiency, labor efficiency, and product energy use efficiency. So really started researching um, all of those different areas and really just out of necessity because I was dealing with bad lumber, getting shipped to jobs and sending things back uh, so many things were just getting more difficult. We had more regulations, um, and really there wasn't a, a straight path to solve. So started just getting really interested in alternative methods of construction, alternative building products, uh, led me to uh, working with a couple of companies and then acquiring some of their IP and patents uh, to move those forward. Uh, and that was based on an EPS and LGS hybrid wall panel building system and then in EPS, and LGS. EPS um, extruded polystyrene and light gauge steel or cold form steel members and it's basically uh, I was looking for something that had used the least amount of material and was the structurally strongest for what I was trying to do and had also a lot of uh, flexibility in the construction so what this product is basically blocks of uh, expanded polystyrene that are routed out and have uh, steel framing members or steel stiffeners inserted into them. And it's a uh, long history, so it goes back to about the 60s in the patent art where uh, a lot of uh, when you had the SIPs starting to take off and starting to be designed around, there are also some builders and, and people that were building this method a lot out in, in Las Vegas, where most of it, all of the casinos are out of steel and foam. So lots of methods were developed. And this was one that I felt was really successful as far as the amount of labor and materials that needed to go into it. So after doing that, um, 
started working with the Department of Energy, they had a, uh, in 2017, they had a building envelope challenge, and I developed a continuous insulation system to submit for that, which led them to say, you know, this would really work with, for retrofits. And um, from there, the Department of Energy introduced me to Rocky Mountain Institute and NYSERDA, who are working on bringing over uh, retrofit systems that have been sort of championed in Europe and started uh, in the Netherlands under a program called Energy Sprong, which is a system to retrofit existing buildings by putting finished panels uh, around the walls and on the roof. So basically wrapping a building, an existing building, in an insulated coat and hat uh, to reduce the energy use. And that's kind of where I've gotten to is in the last three years, not only doing product development around those initiatives, but also business model development. How do we get, uh, what is the, the value chain? Where are the cost compressions? What does the business that could deliver these uh, retrofits look like? Great. And that's, that's what Cocoon is doing right now. Okay, brilliant. Eric, share, share what you uh, have done and what you're up to and what's, what's next for you. Yeah, so hi, thanks for having me too. Um, my name is Eric Stenberg and I'm, I'm an architect at uh, working mostly as a teacher and researcher at KTH, the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. And I've been there for the past 20 years with some private practice on the side, but uh, my main work has been at the university. And um, I've been... Uh, parallel to that, I've been working with uh, the the whole issue uh, of the the kind of the last gasp of the modernist movement in in Sweden, which was the million <laughs> program era, um, where uh, an enormous amount of housing per capita was built during a very short time. Um, it was the period from 1965 to 1974 when one million units of housing was built. Uh, in a country of a population of 8 million. So this stock that we have from that time period, um, which is now 50, 60 years old, still comprises 20% of, of Sweden's total housing stock. So we have 5 million units of housing. Uh, and I've been working with um, architectural uh, retrofitting, uh, renovation, uh, social... Um, and community development. Um, many of these areas are also beset by difficulties in the socioeconomic or uh, questions of poverty, um, segregation, um, and the kind of the double notion of being some of the best housing that we've built, but with the worst reputation. Um, and so there's a, a number of issues tied to this that I've been, been working on both as a practicing architect and, and as a teacher and researcher. And um, I would say that my focus has been on the structural systems that were developed. And they were developed because in the late um, 40s and 50s, Sweden needed to build more housing, but didn't have a larger workforce. So uh, we turned towards rationalization, optimization, industrialization and eventually prefabrication of housing and so this kind of 20 or 30 year development culminated in the million program 
And that's where I've been looking very carefully at the concrete panel systems, uh, the, the room-sized panel systems from the 60s, and both how they developed and, and what how they have fared since. Um, and that's, uh, that's still... Um, especially now uh, in the last 10 years with sustainability issues becoming more and more um, critical, we see that these prefabricated panel systems might actually be quite well uh, adapted for retrofitting and, and um, uh, energy uh, preservation. Okay. Carry on, any more? No, well, I can. That's enough. I mean, I, talk, mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean uh, so I'll just quickly, you know, share. Um, so I'm an architect now, not a very good one, um, and getting better at computational architecture. And I've taught and researched at KTH, the same institute, Royal Institute of Technology, as Eric. Um, we haven't directly overlapped, but I'm pretty sure we met there, and that's exactly that's roughly how we know each other. But then. We've overlapped in other contexts. I've taught the architecture school there, planning school, and research at a kind of offshoot of the planning school in strategic or systemic sustainable stuff. Um, and I've done design practice uh, focusing on sustainable architecture in a different, in a kind of variety of, of sort of large and small projects. The largest of those would be the Kirana. Um, City Move project um, uh, on the team with Bjarke Engels and, and one or two others, and a variety of other scales. And the emphasis in all of my teaching and design work has been uh, sustainability, sustainable um, buildings and cities, but actually the emphasis within that has been um, on sustainable living in a, in a somewhat concrete way based on uh, research and policy work in sustainable consumption. I previously worked at the United Nations and wrote their book on sustainable consumption, urban consumption. And the, the touch point in the middle there is um, what I call service-based living, where rather than buying everything, you have it as a service. Now, I've been working on that before Uber and Airbnb came into existence. It's now called the platform economy or the sharing economy or the on-demand economy. And what I started a new company for a few years ago, Base 2, was to basically try and solve that problem more precisely rather than just have it mixed in with sustainable design. Say, how do we make people use more service-based goods and service goods and have more sort of integrated service lifestyles? It overlaps with delivery-based living, all right? And so practically speaking, what we call service integration, which is the challenge of Base 2, is to make... Uh, everything being delivered on demand stuff into a sustainable lifestyle proposition, part of uh, sustainable architecture, sustainable urbanism, sustainable consumption. Um, and it basically is focused on multifamily uh, properties. I mean, there's actually very little you can do to make single family homes more sustainable. They're just very unsustainable in almost every instance. Um, yeah. So what we're really looking at in the world at large, basically, in any case, is, is densification towards multifamily property and reinvention of the multi-user office format. And so our target market is creating these service integration systems and opportunities for the multifamily, uh, multi-resident uh, um, residence uh, environment and the multi-user office or commercial environment. And obviously, in the middle there are things like retail and logistics and etc cetera, etc cetera. and so it's an interesting balance between 
technical systems, demographic change, consumption change, pure architecture, and then something more urban on the architectural side. In the middle here actually is the, is the work that you are respectively doing, um, which is uh, multifamily housing, including public housing, and also the whole premise of retrofit, right? Because that's really where I think we all overlap, which is multifamily housing, retrofit, and the pub and 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 some of the dynamics in the public sector. I realise, Michelle, that you're you, you know you you're you're too you're too polite to claim you're an expert in public housing, but actually, you, I think you're mainly working in, in public uh, sector retrofit right now. Um, the 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 first question I guess I have um, is before we kind of drill down into details, do you have from where you're currently sitting in relation to your own experience, a sense of the international status? I'll, I'll frame that slightly more clearly. So Eric, what do you feel is the, is there a general debate or is it very different country by country in terms of what to do with public housing stock? Is the public housing experiment finished? Is it being reborn? Is it being revived? Is there, you know, do you have a flavor of that? I'll, and, and, and before you launch off on that, Michelle, what I'll be asking you is, do you have a sense that in the specific area that you're now targeting, fixing public housing with retrofit solutions, which is a little bit of a sub question, if you like, do you have a sense mm -hmm. that that's evolving around the world? I mean, you, you talked about the Netherlands example, so let's maybe explore that dimension and then go into some more details. Eric, what do you feel? Is, sure. is, where, where are you at on the international map, as it were, and vice versa? Well, and I think in, in terms of housing in general, if we're looking at new built, um, I have a, a connection to some international research projects and some international trends, um, which are kind of looking at the effects of uh, the movement of, of global ca capital into the housing sector, um, looking at the... Um, kind of a newfound urbanism and densification of cities and what that is causing in segregation uh, issues. And, and here there seems to be general global trends that all urbanization is not good urbanization. I mean, we're mm -hmm. reaching kind of a peak point now where um, housing, in, if you look in London or Stockholm and, or other cities, the housing in central areas are becoming so is becoming so expensive that it is primarily an object of investment rather than a space for living. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, movies like Push, which is a documentary looking at this, um, um, the, the international capital moving from finance to property uh, points this out. Um, yeah. And what, what this does is it, it, it has this different effects in different countries but the way that it has affected the swedish housing market is that it's it's making smaller and smaller apartments and mm. smaller uh, and in a way more efficiently planned buildings which means there's no mm. extra space there's no um there's really no room left for anything but to enter and then go straight to your apartment um and that's where maybe the issues of where community will take place and where all of these other social actions, all this sharing is going to happen uh, arises. Mm. Um, so that's... In terms of public housing itself, right? What I mean by is that is that, is that housing that's financed by the... Multifamily housing that's financed by the public. Do you have a sense of where that debate is, is progressing? That, that 
institutional dynamic? Um, not as clearly, but I sense that it, it there's two parts of it. One part is the existing um, yeah. kind of the post-war yeah. housing stock, and and then that's the new build. And the new build seems to be depending on on the different uh, countries' internal politics, seems to be alive and, and um, necessary still to support mm. um, the growing segregation. So there's, there's, mm. there's a sense or an understanding that uh, money has been redistributed um, mm. and this, um, this needs to be... Um, by the public uh, sector needs to be taken care of through housing. Understood. Uh, Michel, so, so you, you, you got inspiration from this Netherlands project. What's it called again? Uh, Energy Sprung. Energy Sprung. Is that, do you think that's a sign of things to come or is that a kind of one-off example? No, what, actually, what, what I is think... Exactly actually, and how, what does it represent? So energy... That's, yeah. Right. Um, well, Energy Sprung is one of um, several different groups that have been funded in the EU uh, to come up with ways to retrofit buildings. Right. So there's under H2020, there's a whole bunch of EU projects that have been funded. And I'm, I'm actually, they're much earlier than the US. So the good thing is that we've been able to uh, research the projects that have been done there and take some learnings. Uh, the Energy Sprung project, I think, is a really great model but it's very to me it's very specific to the netherlands while it's been pushed out through the eu and uh, new york and california and other and groups in canada are also looking at how to import the model into the u.s we have to you know we really have to appreciate that we have two very basic very different uh situations in the netherlands they have one building owner which is the government and they have six housing agencies and they've come together with three large construction companies to give them the pipeline to do these retrofits. Right. And they're all working together to solve the problem, right? Very different from what we have in the U.S., where we have multiple types of owners. Uh, the financing system is completely different. Uh, the building typologies are completely different. Um, it's you know, the Netherlands fits in the Adirondacks in New York State, right? So everything they do is, you know, within a two-hour radius. So we have very broad systemic differences. So, but what's been interesting based on all the other work that's been done is sort of figuring out how to interpret the model for the U.S. Mm -hmm. And because and it's interesting because right now, and I'm I'm super optimistic about this. We have groups that are working on uh, Green New Deal for public housing. We have health networks that are now very starting to invest in affordable housing. Um, Aetna, uh, CVS, United Health have all made big investments in affordable housing. Uh, we have the utility operators who are looking for equity solutions for low and moderate income uh customers. So it's kind of different. It's a bigger puzzle to put together. But when we look at it, we have a lot more levers to push because or to pull because we are, if we can find a capitalist, uh, you know, a money making solution for that to make these retrofits make sense, they'll move forward. So that's 
because there's so many different players that are looking for solutions in this space and because retrofitting housing multi-solves, right? So we have better health outcomes. We have better education outcomes. The, you know, you're, you have secure, warm, affordable housing, uh, incarceration rates decline across populations that are you know well housed mm. so and, and then you have the the other benefits of the energy savings and reductions so you have the ghg reductions that can possibly be monetized um so there's you have the asset value increase there's all these different financing things that we can do with it so i think the fact that we have so much interest from um, capital and groups, you know, opportunity zones, just another thing that if we can come up with the solution and figure out a way to deploy it, we can make it, we, it it'll be successful. So I'm actually excited about it right now. Uh, before I'm just going to go on to, 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 to kind of get, get down, start getting down into more detail, go on to, to ask Eric about the retrofit piece, but, but just clarify, you, you contacted me, clarify why that was, because it gives me a hook to jump into the conversation at that point. Sure. That was um, some of our early work was trying to figure out how to add revenue streams yeah. to the model. Yeah. And that was the last meter, right? Where if you're looking at the value chain across the entire financial life of that building, what are the opportunities for um, revenue from the building and yeah. not, and, and when we're talking subscription revenue, I think of rent as subscription revenue. I right. think of, uh, insurance. I think of, uh, anything that, that the tenant that is being housed pays for or buys while they're in that unit. Yeah. And so, you know, we're really looking at these units more as, you know, yes, it's providing housing, which is wonderful, but really, if you think about it, it's it's a recurring revenue device. So <laughs> there are so many opportunities to gather revenue streams from the unit and from you know housing that tenant. So when we look at that, and that was the whole concept when I saw Les Meter, I'm like, absolutely, this is exactly what we need. And there's so many. The other thing is this population that we're working with typically is left behind. This right. isn't the group that's able to access Ubers. These are the people who are driving for Uber. Yeah. These are the people who don't have um, access to that whole economy that you're talking about. Yeah. And so if you can pro provide those delivery services, those last meter services to, to a different population, you open up a huge amount of possibilities. Yeah. Not anyway. just in what you can provide the population, but the revenue streams that can be developed. That's right. I'll, I'll, we'll come, we'll talk more, more about this a, uh, a bit later, but um, just to kind of summarize my, my sense of that, um, what Last Meter does is indeed uh, take advantage of the opportunity to use real estate as an aggregated sales channel. And, and in that sense, you are, uh, Michelle, advanced in the narrative that we, generally speaking, try to you know, um, help real estate understand, which is a kind of what we call a platformization model real estate where the physical asset is the asset underlying a broader platform of services and actually this is very parallel to what's happening with technology or networked the networked world where assets 
are linked to true technology and varieties of services and experiences are made available through them. And I gradually real estate is understanding that, not I think in a very self-conscious way, they're sort of backing into it and stumbling into the opportunity. But I think your way of describing it as a device for revenue generation or whatever is is gradually waking up. Um, uh, one of the blockages, one of the opportunities that we, one of the ways that we analyze this as an opportunity, which is unique to us, as we say, if you try and use real estate as a sales channel without leveraging the physical environment, it won't work very well. So, for example, if you try and sell holidays through the building, there's no particular reason why a building should sell holidays other than maybe it's an you know, it's a, it's a scaled sales channel. What you really want to do as a building manager or developer is to use the building an accelerator or optimizer of the experience you're selling so if you sell for example cleaning services you let the cleaners park in a certain location for example or enter a certain time of day or have a special door or a special cleaning cupboard likewise for uber you know you could sell an uber subscription but you give uber a parking space and so forth now that issue of these you know spatial interventions to facilitate the service you're selling that's the essence of last meter plus some other details but you will understand uh, that the problem is that most buildings are not optimized that way, right? So if you want to make those optimizations, opt optimizations significant, what we call building upgrade, you really want to do it when there's money at the table. And there's almost never money at the table for capital upgrades of buildings, uh, except when you're going through a retrofit cycle, right? So the, the match right. in terms of our model and what you're seeing as an opportunity space. What, we, what we'll talk about a bit later is exactly why you know how this could be used for lower income communities rather than for you know more middle class kind of you know on demand as you, you know, as as you said the, the kind of mainstream of on demand consumption but that's the the hook there just to kind of get into the into a little bit on the details of of um of uh, retrofit um let's just take it in two steps because i think you've both got good good insights here firstly why is there is there a structural is there a tendency or a reason for there to be a tendency in public housing or multifamily housing that leads to certain kinds of structural systems that are more or less relevant for retrofit? What I mean is that if you're building a lot of housing in a, in a multifamily public housing format, are you using structural systems historically that lend themselves to retrofit or not? What's your view on that from the US position perspective, Michelle? Um, well, I think what, so why we've had, there's been some pushback about doing retrofits in the U.S. is, is you will have people who say, oh, the typologies are so different, the construction methods are so different that it can't be done at scale. Uh, we've chosen to kind of push back against that concept and say, yes, the, the building stock and the methods that we use are much different in Europe where you have, uh, long-term thinking, masonry construction, a lot of different methods that are uh, used. We, we typically have lightweight, you know, wood frame construction. So we have to, we just have to design a different product. And rather than looking at the differences across the typologies, we've decided to focus on the similarities and identify, um, you know, so what we've done is identify seven panel types that would work across most building typologies with uh, some customization for sizing and maybe different types of architectural projection. So I think that while it's 
it's definitely more difficult because of the different typologies, because of different climate zones, because of the things that we have to deal with. It's not impossible. Um, so from, from the European perspective, I think as Eric was talking about, you know, when you can go in and say they have a, a million buildings that were built that, that were based on programmatic, you know, industrialization, it's probably a different, it, it's definitely a different concept from what they'll be developing. Uh, um, Eric, so on your, on, on your side, has the historical, have there been historical factors that make it more or less advantageous to do a retrofit rather than just scrap it and build again? Um, but gee, that's a hard question because it, uh, that's geographically, I think, um, if you, if you see Europe as one area, um, then it gets very difficult to answer that question. But if, that, okay, let me, let me, let me, let me, so what I'm really trying to do is surface here. Have there been stages in construction technology that may have been aligned with certain typologies like public housing, such as cassette you know, concrete cassettes, for example, that you would swap yeah, out, yeah. right? Because right, yeah. in the in the UK case, right, taking the UK case, that this is why I was asking, you know, does it facilitate or not facilitate construction? So there was a kind of concrete cassette um, construction methodology that was used primarily for public housing um, in the post-war period that was so bad, <laughs> all the buildings began to fall down. <laughs> And and so it's opposite of being relevant to retrofit. It was structurally unsound, and they had to pull them all down. Not all of them, but a lot of them had been pulled down for the reasons that they struck the, the construction method, which was modular, and you'd think might be you know viable for retrofit on that basis. So that's really kind of what, what I'm kind of point, pointing my finger to. But if it's not very clear as a as a if there hasn't been a cycle of housing that relied on a certain technology model, maybe that wouldn't be so relevant. Well, I, I mean, I think that's the you're pointing at the at the kind of the fine line that you have to define from country to country is that what right. point is the building uh, lifespan over? Um, yeah. I would say that that um, you can look at it there um, from a, a structural perspective, and you can say that the the um, the concrete is now uh, it was cast in such a poor fashion that it it is now outlived its uh, lifespan and yeah. um uh, but to complicate that i would say that since most of these buildings have been um, standing for 40 50 or 60 years we now also have a complex social condition and uh, and the social condition um is that we have families and and uh, communities that have grown up in these areas so just to to um, tear them down is not always solving the big picture it's, yeah. it's um, solving the issue of the building and i can take an example in moscow right now um, the mayor has announced that all six thousand buildings built as um, a solution to the housing problem of the post-war era called Khrushchevskas, because they were initiated by Khrushchev, mm. um, all of them should be torn down, uh, both mm. uh, as a way of getting rid of, of poorly built buildings, but also as a way of, of um, politically moving yeah, really, away yeah, yeah. from uh, modernism. 
Um, and this is uh, gaining some uh, traction, uh, but the problem is there's no solution to what to do with all of the people living in these buildings already. And the panel buildings being built today in um, former Soviet Union and, and uh, Russia is not better uh, in, in many cases. So there's, yeah. a, there's a huge gap there. It's easy to say, tear it down, uh, mm. but, but um, it's not so easy to say what is left of the community. I mean, well, do, I mean, I'm going to ask you a version of this question because I because I want to want to come back to the issue of the of the construction systems and so forth. But just to kind of focus on the on the politics of it for a second, how much do you feel that public housing retrofit, Michelle, is inside a a political debate? Do you feel that the winds are in your favor or are or, or not for restoring public housing where is that debate at in, at the political and financing level in your in your view michelle in the us um and i might be a little biased here because i'm so enmeshed in trying to make this happen that i would say <laughs> <laughs> that that i would I, yeah i do believe with the change in administration um and the priorities uh that have been expressed uh that there is going to be a renewed interest in public housing. I think we are at an inflection point where we are so short on housing units and we are that. And again, the reason I love this problem is because if we solve for it, it solves for so many other things. And there's so many beneficiaries if we can solve for this. And I think that's where we're seeing that there's an awareness that it's not just a, uh, you're not just solving for the population, but you know when when you start looking at the need for new jobs and you know the the jobs creation around Green New Deal and how that you know moves moves towards you know public housing and what you can do to to renew public housing. So there's just there's so many pieces of it that I think that and there's been so much. Uh, policy and legislative push towards it that I really think there's going to be a move uh, to solve for this. So I think this is where optimistic. It, yeah, I think this is where it becomes so interesting because the, this is such a parallel to a hundred years ago. I mean, the societies were facing incredible challenges in the face of industrialization and we had to, to uh, find ways to, to um, s support um, a continued urbanization, and in in Sweden, this is where politics and and um, uh, and industry joined hands and said that let us solve this issue together because it will come with all of these additional values, as you're mentioning. So I mean, mm. this, this is really the the end in itself was not to build a lot of housing in Sweden. Mm. Okay, so it's, we're going to have to do this conversation then. So, in other words, the political relevance of public housing, right? It's the it's the it's the it's the, it's the Leviathan under the surface. I mean, as a as a friend or uh, someone I know who who called Devon Zoigel, um, who is a kind of um, thinker and uh, sharer of uh, good ideas around urbanism, among other things, she's also a, a coder um, in the technology. Uh, sector she has 
she said recently that she wasn't in favor of public housing and i was wondering why and i haven't got an answer out of her <laughs> and i don't know maybe the american experience but but let's just kind of get get into the sort of the, the politics of this just a little bit uh, i know that you resist it michelle on the basis that you say it's not your expertise but you're going to make it your expertise so let's let's have your opinions um do you tr what, just kind of expand outwards from what you were just saying about what you hoped give me a kind of more robust uh, justification for public housing as a premise, right? Not just retrofit, but why is public housing good? What, because one, one of the arguments is, for example, one of the many arguments against it is that it, it actually ghettoizes people. I'm not sure that's the politically correct term, but it, 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 it enforces segregation and economic division rather than the opposite. What, what, would you, what is your sense of public housing in the big picture? Why is it a good idea? And how do we make sure that it doesn't become shorthand for poverty, right? Right, and I, and you're right. I, I, and again, it just goes back to my own my own sense of caring for people and what a, what a country should do versus you know the capitalist environment that we live in. Um, so, so, say like, so, say, say what you think, right? This is a, this is about so, podcasts. Is that right, you say so, what you like? There's no censorship. Just, just tear down yeah. any sacred cows. Go for it. Yeah, my concept is that. What I'm trying to do is make a capitalist case for universal basic housing, hmm. right? If by the if way, that's a very attract, that's a very clear phrase that I haven't heard before. Yeah, um, the and visiting the public housing and speaking to the public housing managers and the affordable housing owners, um, I, I I don't know that I can argue with the the fact that. You know, I hear it spoken of as housing of last resort. They're not trying to build community. They're not. They're trying to literally almost shame people into if this is the best you can do. It's it's completely uh, antithetical to everything I kind of believe in. So that's why we have a framework we have to work within, which is we have to be able to make money to make it viable in in the U.S. So how do we do that? So that's why when I'm backing into retrofitting these buildings and coming up with revenue streams um, and ways to monetize that asset in a different way, we then actually would value it. And I know that and, and because that's the framework with what we're working in is that if you value that housing unit as a revenue product producer, mm. then you actually make it something that's good you make it something that um you you build it right you build it so it lasts you build it so it's comfortable um so that it's kind of a little bit of a convoluted way to look at it so yes I, I'm, I'm not sorry, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me just kind of like uh ask a provocative question are what you are what is what you're talking about really what will be called so uh private sector social housing rather than true public housing in other words are you or are you not in favor of publicly financing social housing so i'm looking at each of the the owner types differently so we have nycha in new in new york's which is new york city housing authority and when you're looking at the number of units that are owned by uh, public housing authorities, I don't think that there's an opportunity, you know, to completely privatize any of that. I think right. some of that has to be done. So 
Um, I definitely believe that there's a place for public housing that's government financed. So, but, so your point about back to your point about the about the revenue stream aspects. Are you saying that that is equally relevant, whether it's true publicly financed social housing or it's more private sector socially oriented housing? That in both cases, one of the one of your arguments for how it can be done better is that it can become a revenue stream in itself. Well, absolutely. But to me, for the public housing that's you know government owned, it's it's about service delivery and optimizing the services the population needs to move them forward. <laughs> Eric, I can hear you cringing in the background because this is not language that you, I suspect you approve of or, or <laughs> endorse, but we'll get back to that in a few cycles. Carry on, Michelle. No, well, if we can't, so we want to provide services that will improve the, the outcomes for the population, which would be healthcare, education, right? We now have all of this where we have people who are suffering because they don't have internet access in, in the current lockdown and they can't uh, sure. you know, access the education, right? So when I think about being able to optimize those, you know, across a platform, the services that you can, you know, level set a population, right? So we're not even, yeah. we're talking about a whole population that's being left behind. And, and that's the, the same thing with these buildings. If we can't come up with a way to, to, to deliver these services equitably, efficiently across a platform, not only do the buildings get left behind because, you know, the deferred maintenance just ends up getting deferred. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about is transforming this building from what it exists as to what it could be. And yeah, that so requires let me, let me, let me us to, to look at that in, so. into slightly more kind of universalized language, because I think it's very brilliant what you're saying. I think what you're saying is that basically if public or social housing cannot finance itself on an ongoing basis, there will be deferred maintenance, which leads to decline and a, and a kind of downward spiral anyway. But also, I, I think what you're saying, which is actually really fascinating, is that there's no point in doing public housing if it isn't the complete package. In other words, if it doesn't create a lifestyle that is sustainable for people that are in it, again, it's just setting people up for failure. And that, I think, is actually a breakthrough in the narrative, at least for me, because um, it helps to describe, although that's the thing, as I say, I put, try, start to put it in slightly more universal language, because I think talking about delivering a package of services sounds very commercial and technical, but if what you're really saying is delivering a lifestyle, delivering a, a, a quality of life, delivering a comprehensive experience, it kind of touches on what Eric was getting to in terms of the political narrative of why, why this is a thing, right? Why is it a political priority is you want to ensure that communities exist around the infrastructure rather than just people having shelters. Um, Eric, on, on, just to kind of stay on the politics for a second, if you were to rebuild the argument for public housing, what would you say? Go. Spotlight on you. Save the well, world now. Well, I, I, I would say that I, I think that the argument is that public housing should be housing for all and not for just a select group of socioeconomic weak. Uh, and and uh, so that I think is the spatial uh, issue that uh, is the most difficult to tackle. Is if if we want to um, truly um, mix or allow for a, a, a growth and decline in in during a lifespan, 
um, then we need to find ways of of making um, the the lowest rung on the housing ladder as high as possible, uh, such that it doesn't just appeal to a single group that then has to be um, financed by taxes. And, yeah. And I think this is also a, a lesson of a, of a small country. And we spoke about Netherlands earlier and, and many other countries in Europe that have actually had different ways of, of uh, tackling that ambition. And, and in Sweden, it went as far as, as the government proposing not to have social housing. Uh, there have been different typologies um, over the years for categories of of residents but in general the idea was to raise the bar of all housing Mm. uh, such that um what you're talking about the the social dimensions and the community building and the uh uh, the ability for a a young person to to get a, a fair chance at getting a good education in school and then providing um for themselves through jobs um, it becomes realistic uh, because otherwise, it it you if we if we talk about public housing as segregated areas, then uh, I'm not really for it. Hmm. So so um, just to kind of put out one specific piece, uh, uh, can you um, uh, would you say that there's a strong enough justification of what you said for public finance? Because what you're talking about is housing for all on a kind of socially improved, on a socially minded basis. There are probably ways to enforce that or encourage that through the private sector. What is the justification of putting public money into that and a lot of it? Uh, is, is it just very hard to do it on a commercial basis? No, I, I think you need to see it as infrastructure. Um, right. Just as as you're putting public money into roads and and uh, bridges and and sure. railways, uh, you need to put um, public money into housing in order to, um, especially to meet sustainability challenges. Um, mm. If if we are to um, build cities that don't rely on a huge service sector um, that is located far away which is going to increase transport and increase um, the CO2 impact, then we need to rethink how the city is distributed. And, and mm. that is a public issue. I think, I think we can spend a lot more time. I think we will. I mean, I want to spend more time on um, the governance and financing and planning and the kind of issue like the intentionality and the lessons from history of, of, of the sort of public infrastructure as you as you as you're sort of framing public housing. Let, let's for now step back down into the technical piece and like drill that out entirely so we have that clear or what we have to say on that point, and then kind of step back up to these more sort of strategic pieces because I'll then throw some ideas or suggestions that mix around service integration and, and what we're doing. But um, just on the technical piece, Eric, what exactly are you doing in relation to retrofit? What's going on there? What, what, why and how? And, you know, just, just explain that more. Um, well, it is a, it's a number of different projects, but maybe the most interesting um, recent project. Share, share all of them, right? It's super interesting. <laughs> well, okay. So uh, in the beginning, I was... I was uh, redesigning the interiors of apartments and um, 
and finding that the systems from the 60s uh, had an inherent flexibility and there was a, a way of adapting to new lifestyles and no, new um, social conditions. So moving from the nuclear family to the um, to to the star-shaped family or to to um, dual families or having in-laws uh, living in the same apartment and and the buildings from the '60s, the housing units in Sweden were actually um, very well. Um, structured to be adapted to this these new conditions and then i moved into the specific and and local swedish conditions of um, retrofitting communities um, trying to to find ways of of um, financing exactly what you're talking about is how do we finance an energy upgrade while we do a systems upgrade um, without pushing out the existing community and then recently, I'm I'm looking at the reuse of concrete panels uh, as buildings are being um, slated for deconstruction um, because of in, in Sweden it's usually because of urban renewal one wants to um, kind of break the modernist slab blocks and introduce new building typologies um, and then they tear down a building or two and and instead of just mashing the concrete into um, road fill, which um, not only is is a waste of um, embodied CO two, but it also releases a number of chemicals into the um, into nature. Um, mm. uh, then why not reuse the prefabricated panels that were um, embody so much of the knowledge that was built up during the forties, fifties, and sixties in terms of modularized building. Um, uh, uh, measurements for uh, functions within the home and um, kind of an ease of um, ease ease of uh, building might and this is the, the thesis we're testing is 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 it possible then to build new building typologies with old pieces hmm. so we're taking wall-sized pieces and uh, reusing them to build new buildings I mean, just a, just a technical question on that. How do you create enough inventory for anybody that is building new buildings to know what they have available to them? Because that's often the problem with materials libraries is that there's just not enough of the specific thing that you're trying to reclaim to make it viable for a new market. How do you fix that? Well, that's the work package that I'm going to be looking at. And that okay. we're, yeah, we're yeah, building a supply chain. Well, we're building a digital database. Uh, yeah. and we do know that the European... Um, European market in the post-war era was um, and consolidated enough that there was a, a, a general uh, standardization movement um, that we think that we can identify the major um, kind of ores of uh, this urban mining process. And in countries as such as Finland, it's easy because they've had an open industrialized system. So all of their post-war housing has been built with the same system. Yeah. In in uh, countries um, in the former East Bloc, um, you have to kind of trace it a little bit more carefully. But um, we we have um, we have pretty good ten-year. Uh, uh, history of, of looking at these systems. And what we're going to add now are the major uh, non-housing units, such as hollow core slabs, etc. Mm. And, and we'll find ways of inventorying, certifying, 
testing and making sure that they can then move into a new market. Um, that's the aim of this project that's just starting up soon. So when you say we, all of these different projects, are they private projects or public projects or research projects or all of the above? No, these these are um, public. This specific one is just like uh, Michelle mentioned earlier, is an H2020, Horizon 2020 European right. uh, finance project. Right. Um, and is the government committed in some way or other to longevity in these enterprises or is it more experimental right now? No, the Horizon 2020 and the EU projects are about knowledge sharing amongst the, right. the members of the EU and yeah. and uh, and the outside of the EU also. So um, this is not a government commitment, but it's more a way of, of um, showing that it's possible. This is kind right. of uh, pilots. And if we can show that it's also sustainable um, in terms of CO2 impact and, and uh climate impact, we can also then um, move into larger business models. Is the, is the national government or any of the municipal governments, particularly Stockholm, are, are, is there a distinctive signal of intent for them to restore and rehabilitate and retrofit the public housing, or is it still an ongoing debate as to what to do with them? I, it, um, I would say that there's a consensus now of um, kind of a general direction, which has taken 20 years to reach this consensus. And the general direction is that it's a, I would call it a um, kind of a reinforced maintenance. So it, we're far away from the large turnaround projects of the uh, 80s and 90s, and we're not really close to the um, ambitious um, retrofitting um projects of the early 2000s and 2010s now in the swedish context we've we've found that the buildings are good enough to maintain and they will stand mm. another 50 100 years but they need um uh, they need need extra maintenance because of um either the def, uh, the the physical deferred maintenance or because of social and socioeconomic conditions mm. michelle on, on your side um in terms of the specific environment, is there a, a a clear technical culture around retrofitting, or is it all just everyone's trying different things? And is there a clear financing environment? How is the I mean, mainly, I mean, mainly the public sector, but perhaps the part of private sector supporting retrofit work? So there's two parts there. One is what's the technical environment for your work, and what's the financing environment for your work? Um, sure. So we're actually currently working under grants from the Department of Energy, their Advanced Building Construction Initiative, yeah. uh, alongside of NYSERDA, which is New York State Energy Research Development Association, and they have a program called Retrofit New York, and their, their work is on aggregating buildings and aggregating a pipeline for solution providers. Mm. So right now, a lot of the things that are being financed are the product development uh, that we're doing. So we are, again, having to come up with, uh, ideally, what we're trying to find is a business-as-usual replacement cost for existing cladding solutions. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the work that I'm doing on the product side. And uh, we have a couple of large building material companies that are partnered with us to, to develop those solutions. We're also partnered with Syracuse University, and they have um, 
both an indoor lab and an outdoor facility. It's the Beazel lab and the best lab. So there's a lot of work in the advanced building construction initiative. And it's a collaborative initiative with the Department of Energy and all of the groups that have been given grants to develop solutions for retrofitting, the actual technical solutions uh, that can then be scaled. The model development is, is the next thing. So how do we deliver these? But well, there's, I mean, there's a big push. There's a big push to develop solutions and, and get, uh, get the technology commercialized. On, on the financing side, how, what, I mean, obviously, it's a strange time in the U.S., but is there a mood, whether at the state level, municipal, uh, metro level, or the, the federal level, is there, is there a mood for fixing public housing, or is it just lost among other priorities? Well, the, the mood is because in New York State, California, where the commitment to the Paris Accord and the 2050 goals, uh, that's that's what where all of this you know resolve you know revolves around because 80 or 90 percent of the existing buildings between 80 and 90 percent of the existing buildings today will still be in service in 2050. Right. So and and our building standards currently are are not net zero. So any building that's even being constructed now that's not passive house will still need to be retrofit to hit those goals. So we think there's a large pipeline. But if you so so really everything that's being pushed around these retrofit initiatives. Wait, is wait, wait. So we just 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 to clarify that because that's just a very interesting yeah. point. So what you're saying is that the mandate on the governmental side of the support environment for public housing retrofit is at one remove. It's not maybe it's maybe not so clear directly, but you're basically saying if any of these targets on climate are to be hit, we've got to do retrofit. Is that your is that am I hearing you correctly? That's, uh, right. That's exactly where it's coming from. So almost all of the benefits from the retrofits are ancillary to the energy savings from, you know, a legislative and a, a government and policy viewpoint. The driver on all of these initiatives is to get the energy use down. Buildings are account for 40% of greenhouse gas emissions mm. in the U.S. It's mm. both. Um, so to be able to reduce that, we have to retrofit these buildings. We have to get uh, mm. generation off of these buildings. I, I completely agree. Um, we have to we have to look at the existing stock in order to meet any of right. the, uh, the agenda 2030 or 2050 goals. Mm. I mean, well, so since neither of you have, I mean, I, I, I accept that. And I think that's, 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 that's exactly right in terms of, you know, um, the way, yeah, I mean, maintaining existing infrastructure and renewing it um, is obviously in principle less resource intensive than scrapping everything and starting again. One thing, um, uh, what, what I would say there, though, is that if that is a, um, well, just from experience as a, as a lifelong professional environmentalist, I would say, Michelle, if what you're hoping is that the logic of the policy environment will lead to financing and specific mandates of retrofit, you may be waiting longer than you expect. <laughs> no, ab- um, absolutely. There's, there's, you know, the finance and the capital stack across these affordable housing properties is relatively complex. Yeah. We are, you know, as we're doing the, the analysis, on, on not just there's a lot of different pieces to that and it goes with um, you know we're improving the asset we're decreasing the opex we're decreasing the 
maintenance on the building. Sure. Hopefully, if we go to all electric, we can reduce the insurance costs, you know, yeah. for the maintenance and, and other things. So you have to really look at each one of those pieces and find mm-hmm. find the pennies dripping off of those you and gather them a, all up. A, you mentioned there was a financing structure that you were working with or focusing on. What was that? There was some some kind of financing model that facilitated some 15-year cycle or something that you mentioned. I can't remember exactly what the context was. Yeah, well, in, a, in affordable housing, there's a, a 15-year cap improvement cycle. And again, it goes... Is that state all, level or federal? Um, that's... That, it, no, and it depends on... It, I, I'm Because we're still working this out and we're teasing a lot of this piece, I can't go into it too much, but right. there's, what we see, there's financial moments across the building right. life. Right. And how do you interrupt those to bring right. these retrofits into existence? That makes sense. Is that does such a thing exist in 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 at the commune level or the sort of district level or in 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 Sweden, Eric? That there's finance on a cyclical basis for capital improvements. Definitely. Um, I mean. This is what brought about uh, the whole focus on the Million Program era um, in the late 1990s, um, mm. because of the um, because of the technical uh, lifespan of the system, piping and windows, etc., was was nearing kind of an end. There was governmental action to move resources towards retrofitting. And that also was was not preceded by, but it was parallel to research then intensifying on how to um, allocate those resources for retrofitting in the best way because of the grand scale of the Swedish housing sector. Um, mm. Because of the one, you know, it's not really one million units of, of multifamily housing, but it, it's close to it was seven or eight hundred thousand units. Mm-hmm. Uh, so since since neither of you've mentioned it, I'll mention it. But maybe I'm just maybe you're speaking for myself anyway. Is I love modernism and I love modernist housing concepts, and I'm almost an unreconstructed fan of them. And all of the narrative about how public housing just did not work from the fifties on fifties onwards, I have question marks over. As in, do we try it properly? <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm fascinated by the modernist experiment in um, in general. I think it's an aesthetic and a and a model that um, I think we can criticize from various perspectives, scientifically and in terms of politics and so forth. But I think as a premise that we should be confidently reinventing our physical environments, and you know, pay. I mean obviously not export the risks or, or, you know, sideline the risks to disadvantaged people. But I think that as, as societies, modern societies, we should be inventive with our living formats. I'm, I'm permanently excited by, by modernism in general, in particular, the largest modernist experiments, which is modernist public housing, both as aesthetic and as historical document and as experimentation in urban form. I'm always delighted by it. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I love to see your work, Eric, is that it's it's even if that's not mainly the reason, the idea that we're giving modernism a, a second life um, in these large formats, I think is very beautiful. Do you have any sense of the architectural aspect of it or is that not of interest to you? I mean, aesthetically and in terms of the historical kind of progress of, you know, you know, a- a- actively consciously experimenting in urban form, is that 
something that occurs to you? Is it, is it part of your work or is it just a parallel thing? Oh, no, it's, it's definitely part of my work. Um, and, and I wouldn't agree as unequivocally as you do uh, with, uh, with it, but I, what I'm trying to do is nuance uh, and yeah. describe what qualities we do need to push through the general um, negative reputation that the post-war um, housing areas have kind of the slab block areas that are yeah. usually seen as gray drab and, and repetitive and boring i'm trying to um re uh, present instead as the pinnacle of 40 50 years of research and right. spacious and quite adaptable and yeah, beautiful exactly. in many ways and well crafted and yeah um light and and uh, brilliant in in a way that they were so futuristic that we we never really lived in them the way that they were intended uh, yeah and and that, that's that's my point right which is there's nothing wrong with saying people should live a certain way if they don't live that way well that then there's a problem because it, the buildings were not intended for that and that that i would love to see more social acceptance in some way i don't quite know how to do this that's the gap of this kind of shared experiment i realize it's a problem to have architects push these experiments on people but still that sense of mission and purpose and opportunity sorry i interrupted but that was my this is one of my enthusiasms here yeah no but i i think you have to you have to be or i try to be clear about what it is that i think is good and what yeah. areas because there are just as many stories of of areas um, not working and, and not functioning uh, down on the technical level also not just in, in terms of the planning, which we usually get stuck in the question of, of urban form, but I, I definitely see them as architectural crafted pieces. So even yeah. where we had an enormous apparatus of industrialization in Sweden, where um, all of the uh, pieces and parts were standardized and optimized, when we get down to the building level and retrofitting, we find that two identical slab buildings next to each other will contain different types of pipes because mm. the iron piping mm. uh, ran out. And so they had to put plastic <laughs> piping in, in the next one or the windows mm. came from a different manufacturer and they weren't as good. So the, the kind of the level of craft when you get down to the, the uh, specific unit um, is also an issue. Um, mm. and that's where we, or I try to separate what was kind of the standardized apartment and then what is the specific unit, um, and mm. an area such as Tensta, which is one of the largest uh, post-war housing areas with almost 6,000 apartment units was built by 23 different builders. Mm. Um, Eric, you've become a professional speaker in English because you, you pronounce the word Tiensta in with an English pronunciation, which is always it's just for you. When you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you pull out the Swedish vowels, which are very noticeable, and just put it into flat English pronunciation. So, thank you for that, uh, Michelle. So let's 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 get back onto the social track for, for for a second and kind of build out from there. Michelle, pitch once again because I think it'll be kind of good to 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 watch Eric's direct reaction to it. Give me your pitch again for buildings <laughs> as devices for selling services, or how do you describe it? Like build your social model from up again. Like what is what is the total package that social or public housing should deliver what should it do right i don't want well I, and i also just want to um jump in real quick on the aesthetics sure. of these buildings uh because if you 
you know, when you think about the public housing in New York City or, or elsewhere where you see these red brick towers or these where there's really no life or there's no uh, aesthetic uh, other than, than depressing for most of them. And we see this across, you know, all of the public housing that we're looking at, that the opportunity exists not just to transform the building from, you know, how it behaves, the energy it uses, but also the the beauty of the building, right? So if we're doing facade systems, there's an opportunity to actually make, you know, have give the residents pride of place, where you're starting to think about how the buildings look and, and how they perform and packaging the whole thing together. So um, that's that's actually one of the things that really excites me as well, is that you could, is when you, you make something beautiful, we value those things. If you let people live somewhere beautiful, those there's value to that for those people. So that's um, that's just an aside. So, and actually the, the concept where I was first thinking about the, uh, recurring revenue devices, I actually had to give a presentation in uh, housing leadership summit in 2018, where I thought it was going, to, I was going to be speaking to as the top 100 builders. And I thought these are builders, like I'm a builder, they're on site, they're building things. Um, when I got to the event, it was actually, you know, C-suite which as a builder, I hadn't really had interaction with C-suite of building, you know, public building companies, um, completely different audience than I thought of. I'm and not sure it, if you're familiar with the phrase C-suite, Eric, are you? Nope. So C-suite is American business language to mean the group of executives at the C level. So CEO, CMO, CTO, COO, et cetera. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's what you meant, that. isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and so, I have to do this weird language translation in the built sector and in general because there's a built sector issue. So we talk about property in the UK. There's there's more of a there's a slightly different language in Sweden, and then there's a very different language in the US. So there's a there's a there's a building level AEC level property real estate language, and then there's tech language, like things like C-suite is more on the tech side. So there's all this translation work I have to do in these in these talks, which is fun actually, making sure that everyone knows roughly what everyone else is talking about. No, and thank you. <laughs> Carry for on, doing Michelle. That, sorry. Right? You just... No, absolutely. So um, actually, the first day at the conference, I realized that the presentation I had planned on was not, you know, this wasn't the audience for it, and had really something I'd been working on was this concept as we all of these building companies basically use the home as an arbitrage for the land purchase, right? It's just a way to unlock the value of the purchase of the land that they've done. And, and typically they want to sell the house and then never hear from that tenant again, because they don't, you know, if they're going to hear from them, it's a warranty issue. So they've made a, made a sale and spent all this time marketing this very expensive thing, probably the most expensive thing this person's ever going to buy. And then they say, goodbye, we don't want to know from you. Um, And it, it was, basically on the heels of when the market cycled in 2008, where uh, these companies laid off, you know, 75% of their workforce. So we have these cycles. And so it was really a concept of how do we soften the cycles in construction and in home building? And to do that, we have to look at the housing unit differently. 
and that's where the concept where, and also it had just been, um, Google and, uh, Amazon had acquired Nest and Ring for billions of dollars. And that was a trigger, right? Where those purchases, those acquisitions were really as, uh, customer acquisitions and the ability to get into people's homes to sell them services. You know, the more data you have where those people live, there's more opportunity to provide services or to get into that last mile uh, concept. So that was where um, this concept of looking at these at housing as recurring revenue devices. And, you know, we did a study of all of the different and, and you see with Open Door and Zillow and these other tech companies that are now doing mass purchases and and selling homes and and acquiring homes, really the play there is all about all of those ancillary um, sales that come off of that. So when you have the title insurance, the home insurance, the financing for the building, the uh, maintenance on the building, those are all the services they're looking to provide. And that's where those revenue streams are going to come from. And so that's the model that's there. We can do the same thing with retrofits. And it's also a little bit easier than new construction because we don't have all of the zoning restrictions. We don't have all the legislative approvals. We don't have all the neighbor lawsuits. The building exists. So now we can go in and uh, alter the building, transform the building with very little you know, permitting and inspection requirements. So it's, it's kind of a, a backdoor way into these housing units through the retrofit. Eric, and what's your what's, sorry? Carry on, Michelle. Sorry. No, 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 and that's and I'm 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 afraid I haven't answered you in a straight line. So no, you, you know, it was, um, it was it was it was it was a good it was a good uh, you set it up actually in more detail, Eric. What's the what's your gut response to the to the concept or the phrase of seeing housing as a as a revenue generation device? <laughs> Oh, I'm I, I'm fine with that. Um, I I'm just not so knowledgeable about it. Um, I, 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 as I've tried to explain, I see housing from the other side as a community building device. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I do understand also the uh, business side of it, which is greatly overlooked in the European post-war research. Uh, mostly, we do look at the kind of the public and political side of it, but we we rarely look at the fact that even in Sweden, um, some of the richest uh, private persons um, come from having built all of these millions of units. Mm. Um, And so that type of innovation and um, uh, kind of business acumen within the construction sector is, is something that I have looked at. And this, I think this uh, interest that you both share and that I'm not so knowledgeable about, but I think I understand a little bit of, um, makes complete sense. Um, when I look at the Olson and Skarna um, construction company and the f- moving into the f- 40s and 50s, uh, building 20 to 30 units at a time, getting bigger orders, 200 and 300 units, how they had to rationalize and optimize through prefabrication um, that is also seeing the housing uh, units as uh, revenue streams and and they would you know not sell off everything but they would keep some and 
that was an amazing, um, amazing time period. And I think we're into something similar now. So, so yeah, so, 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 so the, the way I describe this is, as I say, the platformization of the, of the real estate asset. Um, and it's a little bit different from just thinking of it, of real estate as a pure set of revenue streams, because partly what's going on is that um, it's a balance between what we call, on top of the platformization model in general, who is servicizing what, right? Who makes what into a service, right? Classically, to use you know your insight, Michelle, the real estate owner or manager or developer is themselves um, offering, if you like, the service of habitation or office space, right? And what WeWork does, for example, mm-hmm. is makes that into a more packaged proposition. But essentially what they're doing is they're servicing the direct usage of the space in a very classical way with more or less intensity. And that is, if you like, the easiest way to extend the concept of real estate as a kind of revenue generator is that you just kind of add value to the existing propositions that are there. But what's really going on now, I think, is that it's much more involved whereby for example if somebody's you know if somebody is putting a, an internet cable into a building right real estate managers and developers are saying hey where is our cut for giving you customers which is not part of right. the physical dynamic of the building now that likewise insurance and so forth you can add these things to it which do attach to the building you require a cable into the building you require insurance of the building they are you know, they are situated as business opportunities in the building, but it's not the same as providing habitation or office space. It's not servicing that in a more or less direct way. Um, now, where we come into this, which is what we call user service integration, is one piece of this platformization model. And this is, we think, the most interesting, most valuable, and most influential piece, which is when you take um, user services in the form of deliveries and activities. So it's packages, groceries, pharmacy, hot food, stuff that comes to the building, or people cleaning, dog walking, homeworks, homework clubs, whatever it may be. Anything that sends people or goods to the building is what we call user services. And the user service integration piece, how real estate extracts value from that is the work of base two. Um, and what's very interesting is that, you know, is that how we would like to see this is something that a little bit tries to unite these two dimensions that you've both spoken of you've spoken of public housing as a community building enterprise and you've spoken of you know um michelle uh, public housing as a revenue generating enterprise i'm I'm crudely summarizing some parts of what you said i know that you you meet in the middle but that's just to kind of summarize two poles of the conversation and what we would like to say back to your initial sort of presentation of the opportunity uh, michelle is that user service integration through last meter and other types of things can contribute to bridging that gap whereby for example um let's take nursing right nursing could be used as a bridge between what would conventionally be considered um you know uh, you know luxury user services like food delivery whatever and community building because although you know it's, and so the way we would present it is that rather than creating you know, a revenue generation opportunity, you're talking about a cost saving opportunity, which is the inverse of the same thing, basically, is you use the ability of the building to drive a service to add value. And you just invert that in terms of what your emphasis is. If your emphasis is to cut the cost to the public sector of nursing for all, as opposed to generating revenue for the private developer, it's actually this exactly the same model. It's just you're reversing the incentives somewhat. And to put some concrete examples on that, 
and we, I know we've spoken about this with both of you, but if you are doing a public housing retrofit in an area that has, for example, uh, depressed economic performance that's led to the closure of shops, which you know in the US is sometimes called food deserts. It's less of a real issue in Sweden, but there are actual urban food deserts where the, amazingly, I've encountered this in Pittsburgh, where the grocery stores have literally left the neighborhood because they're not making enough money. As, as amazing as that seems, there's just not enough people buying food in the neighborhood to make a retail grocery store viable leading to a so-called food desert concept. I think in those kinds of contexts, for example, you could use a last meter type of model whereby the public housing authority says, okay, as part of the retrofit, we'll put in this delivery location. And in the delivery location, you create an incentivized opportunity for bulk delivery by grocery companies, for example, right? And if they can do bulk delivery, which previously they couldn't do before the retrofit, they can save a ton of costs and suddenly it becomes a viable opportunity for them. Likewise, step it up a level, you could say that the public housing authority could buy groceries, at least basic groceries in bulk, etc, etc. And so that's, that's my little kind of, you know, sort of input to the, to the, um, firstly, to kind of bridging the revenue generation machine analogy, you know, re re revenue generation device, but also the community building dimension can do, I, do you can have I a, add a sorry. point to that can i just add? Yeah, yeah. what i think is is unique then in the swedish context is that the buildings from the 50s and 60s that we're talking about retrofitting they are also spacious in the sense that there's extra exactly. square meters uh, yeah, exactly. compared to buildings today um being being built um and therefore they are um better adapted or more uh, well uh, suited for this type of service integration yeah i agree with that i mean that's very clear it's also partly to do with the fact that in the swedish case which is a bit different in the u.s case the public sector owns the land in most cases uh, and so has more authority over how it shall be deployed um than than in maybe the case uh uh, privately, but um, just on just on that point, do you see? Um, do you have a sense, Eric? Has I mean, has there been in history any examples of this? And do you have a sense of it being a narrative that can take off in the minds of, let's say, district, commune level kind of administrators to try to think through efficiently providing services in this kind of service integration model? Has ever, and so the question is, has it ever happened before? And how close are we to happening again or for the first time if it hasn't happened before? Well, it's, it's happened at the district level with the classic ABC cities. Uh, a for Arbeta work, B for housing and C for commercial or cultural um, activities. So, so that type of thinking. But traditionally, and I think currently, we will not see it at, at the level of politic the politicians of a, of a district we will see it in the municipal housing companies so that's mm. that's where i think that that right, type of, course, yeah. um, that type of uh, interest in in diversifying their offer uh, mm. will be um, supported and they have they have a long history of that type of initiatives um, mm. that are both social technical um, um, answers to whatever the local community needs. Mm. Do you think that that um, that the social aspect of it, Michelle, in the U.S. is going to be 
an issue, or how do you, how do you see Lost Meter type of stuff like helping the narrative and the on the sort of more um, socially oriented part of your work in the U.S. Are you there, Michelle? Let's see. Yeah, I am. I'm 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 just pondering for a moment because the the social aspect and the delivery of the the services that we're talking about, I do see, and again. And it's a hope and optimism where we are going to see the the need for the ability to provide these things equitably across the populations. Right now, you know, where we have such inequality, uh, income inequality, opportunity inequality, that this is going to be something that is pushed. And I know just, you know, the groups that I'm working within it's it's obviously um, a guiding star, and and so it, when we're talking about you know energy poverty, and you know uh, housing you know unhoused people, and how do we s solve all of that? So I think that when we start looking at how do we bundle these services, and and to be able to do that and provide them efficiently and economically and equitably we are going to have to look at it as a package mm. and that's, and, and I, I know I don't use all of the touchy feely things about community because that's, you know, something that, you know, in social housing, it hasn't been uh, really emphasized in the U S and, and we've looked at it as that housing of last resort. And I really think that there's an opportunity to change that narrative. Do you think? I mean, to what extent uh, is the is the retrofit um, moment the crucial one in 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 as it were engineering or leveraging this service into social service integration argument into place? Or are they on parallel tracks? Is it the best target? I mean, should how do you, how do you use the 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 retrofit piece to to animate that that social service dialogue? Right. So ideally, as we're it's it's about making everything easier for the building owner, right? If you can bring in a package at a single time, typically these owners do not have the sophistication or the resources or the time or the staff to start integrating even a basic building management system or a tenant management system. And mm -hmm. so when we're thinking about if you can come in at one point and be that provider who can provide not just the physical retrofit of the building, but also the technical re retrofit of the building and the service mm -hmm. retrofit. So if you start looking at, and, and you can present these, these technical solutions as operation cost reductions, right? Mm -hmm. So if we can make those, if we can manage those buildings more efficiently, again, there's more, more revenue that you're able to produce. Mm -hmm. So the more efficiently that building's run and managed and the less personnel that are required, you can now shift those resources to, um, building more housing units, mm. providing mm. better services. So, mm. so that's why we have that moment. Mm. And when I, so, you know, the cocoon concept came from, we're not, you know, we're transforming the building and it's mm. not just the physical transformation, but it's also, you know, the mechanical and transforming that building into something that is pertinent in, you know, 2021 you know, mm. from a technology standpoint, because if we continue mm. to leave the technology behind and the maintenance and the buildings behind, 
everybody just gets left behind and it becomes that much harder to bring every, you know, upgrade everything in the future because you're so, again, the population falls behind, the buildings fall behind because they're not able to be managed and because they're not able to take advantage of the technology solutions that currently exist. So that's why there's that transformation point, I think, at Retrofit. Um, uh, the, the, what, I mean, just a comment on the, on, the, on the social service aspect there. One thing I, I, I realized I hadn't, hadn't seen so clearly is that because public provision of healthcare is such a, I'm not, I'm not sure it even exists at all in any way in the US, but um, the argument that you're saving costs um, through, um, through of public health provision, I, I see is less relevant because it's just not a debate that's happening. Whereas in the whereas in whereas in in Europe, in particular in Sweden, which has a robust public healthcare system, um, one of the arguments I think I'm going to throw this on to you for, for for dismissal or comment in a second, Eric. But one of the arguments I would make in terms of service integration is that, for example, if you are planning a district and thinking how do we get hospital and clinic provision to people in this new district, let's say tens of thousands of units at you know, urban scale, which of which there are many projects around Sweden. The question is, do we build a new hospital or do we have mobile nurse, do we, do, we, do we build a new healthcare center, which is one of the provision planks in the Swedish healthcare model, or do we have a, a mobile provision model where nurses are in vehicles and there are mini stations with equipment around the community which creates, in principle, a cost saving, right? For certain kinds of healthcare, you can imagine that. Um, now, you can't plan that unless you have access to these kinds of last meter integrations. And certainly, if what you're doing is you're renovating or renewing a neighborhood or a district, you can start to see how uh, the ability to save costs of public service provision um, through you know, thinking uh, of service integration at, at the retrofit moment is is advantageous but it kind of relies on there being a presumption that you're going to spend money through the public channel that you can that, that you would like to spend efficiently up front which isn't necessarily the case in the us um, what we'll do before we, we round off um, i'd love you to kind of comment on some sort of the technology aspects here and then give your visions for how you want your work to progress but before we just to finish on that point eric what do you think about these social services provided through a sort of service integration on demand channel is that realistic does retrofit, does public housing help with that? Where, where do you come out on that overall premise that I'm pitching? Well, I mean, the challenge of the aging population is definitely moving in the direction that you're talking about. Um, right. We do see more care in the home because for every um, issue that can be dealt with in, in somebody's home, um, we're saving enormous amount of costs on at the hospital level. Right. So, so to integrate that further and to to ease that um, ser- that healthcare service um, in the home is is a major challenge. Um, mm. So, yeah. So, so you so you think it's a that I mean, you see the premise basically. I mean, yes. I, it's a it's a it's a trick question because I know I know what roughly what you'll say, but for the podcast listeners, I'd love you to just say what you think publicly. So that's interesting. I mean, so we'll, we'll round off with just you know a, a sort of your hopes and 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 visions for what for what you're working on this space. But just to quickly, because I know that people who listen to this are 
I mean, often a lot of them are in, you know, AEC and built sector technology. Do you see any of the technologies available for the built environment or any technology of any sort helping in this space? Or are we just like hustling our way through with engineering and financing and policy issues? Is there a tech edge here? Michelle, maybe you should, maybe you could start. Oh, absolutely. Um, and actually, it's one of the core principles of what we're building is that yeah. we need the technology um, to compress the costs of that project delivery. So even if we look at the retrofit as a break-even cost to acquire yeah. the customer, yeah. we, we know that to do what we're doing, we have to have a very robust, high-quality construction project. But right. to be able to spend on the construction, we need to compress, and I know that architects won't love this, but we need to compress all of the acquisition pieces and that, and, and the project things that we can compress through technology. And that does include the design, the engineering, the energy audit, um, right. and the O&M on the building. So yeah. there's definitely, we're looking at, you know, centralized design and engineering based on some of the technology is already there. Some of it we're pushing to have developed. Some of what we're working on developing um, to be able to go ahead and come up with the, the financing package, the insurance package, the, the product package, you know, that productized retrofit that then gets delivered and put on a building. And then how we do the O&M and the warranty piece. So Understood. there's a lot of opportunity for technology improvements in what we say verticalization is a good way to summarize some of that like verticalizing and modularizing the, the construction and development stack yeah i say i well we're, we are verticalizing all of it the thing i love about construction in the u.s is that it's very the distributed manufacturing model because it yeah. is a very democratic kind of you know the way we build it um, on site and anybody with a, a cut saw, a circular saw, a truck and a two by four can start building, right? It's not great, but I'm saying yeah. there, there's opp there's opportunity, there's entry. So okay. we're actually trying to take kind of the models that work, you know, because a lot of the, we've seen a lot of verticalization uh, over the last hundred years. And if you've studied it, you know the points where it fails. And right. so we're trying to, uh, build our model off of um, taking the best and ro most robust aspects of what exists, what's been tried and has worked, um, yeah, and not try and reinvent anything too much. So, uh, Eric, on the tech side, what do you feel? Is there anything that stands out to you? Uh, this is it's beyond my uh, knowledge and almost beyond my understanding. But I, I there's definitely um, a lot of work to be. Uh, done and and I I no I I don't have any anything smart to contribute in terms of the tech side I I just want to say that all all the, all of what you're saying seems to confirm my um, understanding of of the post-war uh, housing built in in Sweden and Northern Europe as as well qualified to receive all of this development which means that right. completely adaptable. Um, to 2021, um, whereas um, in the public eye, most of these buildings are still seen as as ready for demolition, and, mm -hmm. and that is um, that would be great to see how 
the next generation technology solutions could confirm how good these buildings are. Mm. Thank you. So last phrase, just a, just a quick snapshot. Give, give me one sentence on what you'd like to see next for your work. So it could be about what happens in the environment of your work or what you want to do next, but just one sentence on it so we can write it up. Michelle, how about you start? That's really, that's a big ask. Um, we could maybe just make, make it very simple, whatever comes to mind. So it could be, I want more public finance. I want developers to take notice, whatever it comes to mind, just so we have a sense of you know how you're seeing the, the coming year and couple of years. Yeah, I think ideally I'd love to see the collaboration um, from the legislative and policymakers along with the industry. Uh, okay continue to develop and, and become more robust. It's very coherent. I mean, uh, yeah, Eric. Well, I'd, I'd like the, um, the sustainability discussion from the architecture and construction industry to take into account the lifestyle changes that are happening such that mm. we could in these, um, if we call them public housing areas could understand the, the, um, actual or true climate impact um, and make advances there uh, through um, tech solutions in some cases and, and uh, architectural solutions in other cases. Mm, interesting. I mean, so um, uh, what, what, I would, what I want to see is basically that the public sector housing actors and debates, I mean, I'm speaking selfishly here, understand, and it overlaps with what you just said, Eric, the opportunity to create social service opportunities, regeneration of the of the neighborhood opportunities, but also lifestyle sustainability opportunities through service integration, because if they are doing any kind of investment, um, if they're thinking of these areas at all as policy priorities, I think you would want to take that seriously because they have a lot of levers in their hand. How you do logistics, how you do retail, how you do lifestyle, how you do consumption, how you do waste management. And we would love to get that debate moving faster because on the private side, where we're also working, where we're predominantly working, it's not nearly so exciting. People just want pizza at night or whatever the hell. You know, they want pharmacy goods delivered within 24 minutes or... Um, Anyway, so it's been great to have this initial conversation. I think we've covered a lot of terrain quite shallowly because it's such a vast field. But what hopefully we've done is framed a, a further debate for ourselves, hopefully some collaboration opportunities, which we've been discussing. But also we can now, I would certainly from my perspective, it's easier for me to bring other people into this conversation by saying, hey, listen to that podcast because those guys have got a lot of interesting insights and doing great work. So thank you for joining in and let's keep the conversation going. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, thanks, John. Been fun. Thank, Thank you. you.